Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Beit-El. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security. And I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security, defense, and leadership. This new episode, which we are recording in late March, the 27th of March to be precise, is once again devoted to the horrendous war in Ukraine, the war of aggression launched by Russia. We are now one month into it, and apart from the destruction and death, which are always predictable, it has unfolded somewhat unpredictably, with Ukraine holding out much better than expected, and the Russian forces performing much worse than assumed before. To understand the sides and the situation better, we have with us two predictably excellent women, Professor Christina Spohr, Professor of International History at the London School of Economics, and Dr. Olga Oliker, Director of the Europe and Central Asia Programme at the International Crisis Group. Welcome to both of you. It's a real pleasure to have you both with us. And as ever, perhaps we can start with understanding a bit more about yourselves and your background. Christina. Thank you, Ilana, for this invitation. I'm very honoured to, to speak. I studied economics, European studies and French um, first, and um, my university career took me uh, from the University of East Anglia in the UK to Sciences Po in Paris, uh, and then I did my graduate studies at Cambridge University and did my PhD on um, German-Russian-Baltic relations in the 1990s, and I wrote a book about it. And um, after that, I had the chance to uh, offer historical advice to the um, Secretary-General uh, Lord Robertson in 2001, which was a very exciting time because, of course, that was when um, the NATO enlargement question um, to the Baltic states was on the cards, as well as, of course, then the occurrence of the September 11 terrorist attacks. So I was uh, doing a lot of work with the Special Advisor on Eastern European Affairs, Christopher Donnelly. That was a very uh, enriching time in Brussels to have such experience, to see how an international uh, security organization works from the perspective uh, of, of a historian and researcher. And then um, I got a postdoc, a junior research fellowship at Christ College in, in Cambridge, and I really embarked on this historical uh, career before I uh, got a, a permanent lectureship uh, at the LSE, where um, after more than a decade, uh, I've risen to become the professor of international history. And recently, I had the wonderful chance to be the inaugural Helmut Schmidt Distinguished Professor at the Kissinger Center uh, at SAIS and to experience a first American COVID lockdown and the Trump presidency and Black Lives Matters all in the United States capital. Uh, and for as a German Finn to see the White House being, um, you know, caged in by fences reminded me very much about what it must have been like when the Berlin Wall uh, went up. That was a very, very fascinating time for me. And also an opening sort of in terms of um, the the global affairs, because I was um, finishing my recent book on the global uh, exit from the Cold War, looking at, at China and Europe and the Soviet Union, obviously, and realizing that for the United States, when they look to China, they look across the Pacific. And that really came to me while I was in Washington, whereas when you are growing up in Europe, you think about that part of the world in the Far East. So it, it was very exciting um, to realize that these perspectives where you are located matter. Um, and to have these opportunities 
um, to take one on and broaden one's horizons and, and have a chance in the United States capital to engage with a whole host of new types of diplomats and, and international organizations, people, very many strong leading women that I encountered of my generation and the generation above who had really made it. Well, thank you. That sounds absolutely fascinating. Before the recording, you were worried that you might be slightly boring because you're not an ambassador. I don't think many ambassadors could beat your experiences, not to mention your excellent academic uh, credentials. Well done, you. Olga, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Absolutely. And uh, Ilana, thank you also for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I kind of made the reverse journey from Christina recently because I came to Europe um, in the middle of 2019, just in time to get locked down in Brussels uh, from the United States in part. Well, I knew I was fleeing the the rather toxic environment uh, that had been created by the election of Donald Trump. I did not realize that it would mean that I was going to spend lockdown and experience all of these uh, these wonderful cataclysms in a place that's very different from the one where I'd spent most of my career, though I was very pleased um, for the cheese shops and the bakeries uh, through that process. So I started off my professional life as a Sovietologist, uh, but the Soviet Union collapsed when I was in graduate school. So I became a national security generalist uh, instead, uh, went to work at the Pentagon after I got my master's, then um, started a PhD, you know, at some point, I can tell you the, the wrong way to do a PhD, which is take 20 years. Um, but I have uh, worked at the Rand Corporation. I have um, worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I helped occupy Iraq for a while. I've worked on Afghanistan. I've had a, you know, a bit of a bifurcated career in that I've spent about half my time looking at Russia and its neighbors, including Ukraine and the other half looking at America's wars. Then Russia started having wars, so I got to focus. Uh, So since 2014, um, other than brief stints looking at refugee crises elsewhere, it's mostly been um, very much focused on Russia and the European region, uh, Eurasian region, all of it somewhat broadly defined. I also write a lot about nuclear weapons policy. Thank you very much, Olga. I think the thing that is I find fascinating, what you haven't mentioned, Olga, is that you were born in Russia. You come from a Russian family and you're a Russian speaker. Christina, you are Finnish German, as you pointed out. So besides both of your excellent academic qualifications, both of you also, could I put it, have a certain personal sense of Russia? Is that a, a legitimate way of looking at it, Christina? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a grandfather who only died very recently and he had been born in 1911 when Finland was still a grand duchy in the Russian Empire. And he was, of course, only a young boy when the civil war erupted and when Finland gained independence and he fought in the from the winter war to the Lapland war from 1939 to 45. So it was always part of family history to hear about that experience, um, much more so um, then when you grow up in West Germany and you see the occupying forces and and in my family, we talk very open about it. But in many German families, we didn't really talk about what those British soldiers were who um, came shopping <laughs> in the streets on, on the weekend from their bases. So uh, that was definitely very interesting. And to think of um, growing up in two border countries to, to the other block, but in very, very different situations, uh, which some, somehow reflects, of course, also on how I look at it today. And I've I actually just started to learn Russian before the first lockdown in in Washington with a teacher uh, over there, a a Russian lady who has lived in America for 30 years. And I've done this now for two years. And it was an escape, a mental escape during the lockdown to get to really know 
uh, that country also linguistically properly by spending every day several hours learning the language. It's been absolutely fascinating in that sense. The lockdown was a godsend for me to have that opportunity. Fascinating. And does it give you a different insight, do you think, into Russia? Absolutely, because I can read the news. I can listen to the speeches uh, as they unfold. Um, I can co compare firsthand what's going on. I can read the documents. I can get a have a feeling much different for the language than if you just read in translation, even if they're official translations, say, of um, governmental documents, because in each language, the choice of words um, that are used, especially when it's also legalistic words, always come with a particular connotation. And if you haven't got the language skills, you can't cannot sort of sink yourself into it. So I think language acquisition actually, both for diplomats, obviously, uh, but also international historians is really, really the most important thing to have, have that ability to put yourself on the shoes of the other side. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Olga, being Russian born, does that make a difference? So my grandmother was born in 1912 in Zhytomyr, which is Ukraine, um, on my mother's side. Uh, her husband was born in uh, Russia, my maternal grandfather. My paternal grandparents were born in what was then Poland and is now Belarus. And after the Germans came in to Poland post-Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, they actually went east to Russia because that was the safe place to go. So it's a very Soviet-Jewish story, which, you know, both of my parents were born in Russia. I was born in Russia. We left the Soviet Union. We left Soviet Russia in the 1970s. My parents never identified as Russian because the Soviet Union never identified them as Russian. They never felt Russian. I've never felt particularly Russian. I'm American. I grew up in the United States. I was trained in the United States. But of course, I grew up speaking Russian. I grew up reading Russian. I grew up with Russian children's stories and books and songs. It does give you a, um, a certain entree, I, get, I think, into understanding the culture. And I, I agree very much with Christina that the language is so important. Look, if you have people who speak the same language, who even have the same background, often have a very difficult time understanding one another. Think how compounded that is when you're working through a translator. Olga, you start from a really interesting point, which is that your family came from what was effectively the Pale of Settlement, if you're an Ashkenazi Jew. But what Russia is trying to say is the Russia sphere. Can you explain to us a bit more what this Russia sphere is, because there's so much talk about it. And it's referred to as though it's an understood thing um, that Putin refers to and Medvedev refers to. What is the Russia sphere? There's several ways of understanding what areas Russia feels proprietary about and why. And there are historical, cultural, linguistic reasons uh, for this, which may or may not be perceived as valid by the people who are being claimed this way. You know, people will often, when they start talking about modern um, politics, they'll say, well, you have to go back in history. You have to go back to the ninth century and Kiev and Rus. And, you know, you can do that, but you'll then find that Ukrainians and Russians tell you different stories about Kiev and Rus because everybody claims that that is their point of departure. And uh, so do the people of Belarus, incidentally. And a lot of things have happened uh, since the ninth century. So what we can talk about, and uh, Christina may also want to make way in because she works on this, is there's Russian empire, right? So you've got this huge empire that is built by the Russian Tsars, and it encompasses a whole lot of territory, but it comes and goes, right? Ukraine, most of Ukraine is part of it most of the time. 
Poland comes and goes, very complicated relationship. Lithuania, very complicated relationship. In the South, you've got the Caucasus down into Georgia. You've got Central Asia, efforts to conquer, efforts to colonize, right? Um, Very complicated. You know, the Russian Empire is a contiguous land-based empire as opposed to going abroad uh, across the seas to find something decent to eat. They just went south. And then the Soviet Union comes. And initially, the Soviets say, we're liberating all of you, but now you're with us in the Soviet Union, which arguably is another form of Russian empire. When you look very specifically at Ukraine, you do have the Ukrainian people and the Russian people having lived side by side for a very long time, hundreds of years, a lot of intermarriage. The languages are similar but different. I do not speak Ukrainian. I speak Russian. If I spend a lot of time, I can figure out Ukrainian, but there's a tendency for me to get things horribly, horribly wrong because of lots of false friends. But there is a perception historically, I would say, in amongst both peoples, of a certain closeness. Now, this has largely fallen apart as a result of Russia waging war on Ukraine. So on the Ukrainian side of things, this notion that we're all one people, brotherly peoples, that we have so much in common, has not survived eight years of war and now this last month of particularly vicious war. On the Russian side of things, there is this historical tendency to view the Ukrainians as kind of Russians, but maybe more provincial, uh, to view the Ukrainian language as a dialect, um, to kind of discount a separate history of Ukraine. So I don't know how helpful this has been to explain it, because I think what it is, is it's very, very complicated and very emotional and very much about the stories people tell themselves about the history of their people. And that changes over time. Uh, It changes because people learn things that they didn't know before, and it changes because your perspective changes. That's very interesting. Christina, were you aware of all of these things when you started studying the end of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War? Well, I think what is um, really striking when one studies the end of the Cold War and one looks how that country fell apart along these Soviet Socialist Republic lines, you realize, of course, that um, because it's a multinational, multi-ethnic state and there are so many layers uh, in which, um, you know, in in several territories, you have all sorts of peoples. Uh, And you have, of course, through the Russification processes also had, you know, an influx of Russians, not just from the European part, but also from the Asian parts uh, into places such as the Baltic republics, but also, of course, in all the other republics. And then you realize and learn that one of the concerns on the southern rim of the Soviet Union was also, and that had emerged already in this context, of course, of the Afghanistan war uh, in 1979 and the Iranian revolution, that some of the southern republics, the peoples might might orient, um, you know, along the religious lines, which didn't fit that Soviet uh, modernization model. And we must not forget that this one thing that um, Putin, of course, um, picks up on uh, about the the, um, Russian minorities, but also that, um, you know, Lenin had said and made this offer effectively that, you know, the peoples of Russia uh, and the peoples can be of all sorts of uh, nationalities may first find self-determination along national lines. And then eventually they will come to this modernization project, which 
was um, that Soviet Union. And of course, um, what is for him, for Putin, uh, not really fascinable is that uh, when Finns and Estonians, Latvians and Lithuanians took independence and chose independence, um, they didn't then anymore want to join that Soviet project. And that's sort of always been um, a thorn in the story because, um, of course, when Finland got attacked in the Winter War, they fought, they lost territory. Um, in the end, they come out and, and don't end up in the Warsaw Pact. They manage their independence under great pressure uh, in, in the Cold War. And then when the Cold War ends, they align politically by joining the EU. So their sort of neutral, non-aligned status that they were forced into in the, in the Cold War is clearly turning, uh, you know, also politically, uh, openly uh, to the West. Not NATO membership, but EU membership. And that was sort of considered the first step, but it's always a consideration also what is actually uh, your best defense and deterrence when you have such an overwhelmingly huge and also domineering uh, neighbor. And this great sense that you can get bullied and harassed by somebody who's much larger and bigger if they want to exert pressure on, on what you can or cannot do. And that freedom of political maneuver is really important. But if you think at the Baltic states, you know, we must not forget that they got uh, annexed into the Soviet Union. And that's always written out of the story also now. So when, when Putin said, um, you know, in 2005, that the collapse of the Soviet Union, in his mind, is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe. And here's, you know, one of those seeds uh, why, you know, in order to overcome that sort of post-imperial trauma that the Russian Federation finds itself in uh, ever since uh, 1992, really, um, you know, the sort of the gathering of the historical lands, the references to that near abroad, in other words, the ex-Soviet republics and that verse for Putin, you know, it's also a humanitarian strategy that so many Russians are outside Russia. And somehow that needs to be, they need to be brought back home. And, you know, to me as a German, that's a sort of, when I hear that sort of thing, uh, you know, it reminds you of, you know, this problem of Kulturnation is bigger than Staatsnation, Heim ins Reich, all these kind of things. It always comes with these sort of imperialist uh, overtones. And we have to, of course, remember, um, as Olga said, Russia is a Eurasian empire by its sheer size. It's by its size the biggest country in the world. It spans from the Baltic Sea to the Bering Strait to the Pacific. It's a huge thing to hold together, even in that smaller form of the post-Soviet Russia. But then on top of that, uh, especially under Putin's revisionism, you know, to remind Russians of Russian values, the strength of the Russian state, and that the Russians that we belong to Russia or even in that Russian world, Ruski Mir, you know, uh, that one has to overcome this humanitarian tragedy for the people. Um, and, and, and that is where, you know, these, these elements of tying the former Soviet republics closer to Russia comes into play. And of course, also the manipulation of those people who are outside the country. And that's where, you know, when the Balts, for example, feel that they get lumped into all these stories of the other uh, former Soviet socialist republics, um, you know, that's a neuralgic point for them because they say they weren't actually uh, among the first constituent republics of the Soviet Union. They were forcibly annexed after the Hitler-Stalin Pact, which we already heard about, after 1939, and then the double occupation, and then the Annektierungsbesetzung, the annexation occupation. So that is all, you know, now at stake because in some ways, if you're looking at this 
um, the, the Russian, the Putin's way of really wanting to change that post-Cold War order. It's about redrawing the boundaries and re, um, recalibrating Russia's position also as a global power, as a Eurasian empire, if you so want, uh, in, the, in that old vein. Uh, and it's, got, it's, it's wanting to reverse what happened in 1991. For him, the biggest catastrophe, not World War I, not World War II, but the collapse of the Soviet Union. Can I, can I jump in on this? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, I think- so again, it's language and how do you understand different kinds of language and which, which aspect of the collapse of the Soviet Union is catastrophic, right? Uh, and for a lot of people living across these countries, the 90s were catastrophic. The collapse of the Soviet Union as it took place was a very, very difficult and painful economic, political, and social cataclysm. And in Putin's language and Russian language past, there is a tension between kind of this notion that this was a very difficult thing, but it served good purposes, and this was a terrible thing, and it needs to be reversed. And I would say you'll find different people who think different things at different points in their lives. I'd also say the Baltics were always different. I mean, even the Soviet Union, they were different, though I'm not sure the reason is the annexation per se. I think the Ukrainians right now would tell you they were annexed repeatedly, constantly, and throughout. So, you know, on the one hand, I think everybody felt a little annexed if they look at it through a colonial lens. Um, but also the Baltics were always different and always seen as different. My parents honeymooned in Tallinn and definitely felt that it was abroad uh, in, the, uh, in, in the early, uh, I guess, in the late 1960s. Um, so, you know, it's, I think, the other thing to keep in mind when you look at Russian history, Soviet history, Russian history, is this pervasive belief that Russia is insecure. And you've got Catherine the Great and imperial expansion on the logic that, you know, if you don't grow, you die. Um, this notion that you need buffers, but if you actually expand, then you don't have buffers, right? You just have more territory that you have to defend. What Russia came out of the Cold War thinking, and my, my assessment of it, is that the countries, at least the countries of the former Soviet Union, were natural allies, were its natural buffers. So you don't have to annex them and own them. In fact, maybe it's better not to. You want them to be like the Warsaw Pact was during the Cold War. Very loyal, very obedient, but they give you strategic depth, right? Your adversary, if your adversary is moving in tanks, has to go through Poland before they can get to Russia. It's not, um, you know, in the age of missiles and uh, bomber planes, it doesn't 100% make sense. But it is a very pervasive way of looking at things. And then you add to that the neuralgia about Ukraine. It's, you know, it's tough to parse. Um, I, I completely understand the Polish and the Baltic nervousness about the appetite growing with the eating. If things work well, you look for other opportunities. Um, things aren't going well, though, right now. So, you know, if I were Poland and the Baltics, I'd be breathing a pretty big sigh of relief uh, just because of just how poorly we've seen the Russian army perform in Ukraine. Absolutely. Um, But let me take both of you to a slightly different point. You're both really good at explaining to us how come there is a background which leads to this point. But isn't there also a conceptual point with Russia, which is really quite fascinating, which is we are Russia, this is the way we think, we don't want to change. Because a lot of what 
we've been talking about here is actually also true to Germany to a certain extent, would have been true to the Brits, uh, to the UK, to, to France. You're an empire. You're used to going out conquering places. You're used to doing things to other people, subjugating them. You're used to saying that border doesn't mean anything to me. And yet there was a sea change. Yet, you know, so you end up already after the Second World War in Western Europe and then um, since the end of the Cold War in Eastern Europe, you change your mind, you become different people, you evolve. There's also globalization, different contexts. Why is it that Russia refuses to do that? Christina? I think that um, the countries you just mentioned, so Britain and France went through decolonization. Um, and of course, uh, Germany learned the hard way. They were defeated, they were divided. And um, in the West German case, you know, you had the denazification, you had, the, had to learn to become a liberal democracy, but most of all, because you lost sovereignty, you had to regain credibility by actually um, joining and creating, creating the EC and, and, and joining the North Atlantic Alliance in order to be able to rearm. So you had to completely anchor yourself in something that, you know, where previously there was this worry of Germany, Schaukelpolitik, does it look East, does it look West? And I think in some ways, um, Germany now, um, today, is, is an example of having also unified and um, regained full sovereignty, that a lot of those lessons learned are completely ingrained in the way, um, you know, the majority of the population really thinks. And I think it's telling that, you know, many Ukrainians who are now fleeing refugees, Jewish refugees, choose Germany because that's where they were safe. That's where they feel safe. The same happened, of course, already towards the end of the Soviet Union as well. Um, you know, um, Jewish emigres from the Soviet Union also came to Germany, you know, many musicians. Um, and I think that really shows you how a lesson has been learned. Look at France. France, yes, um, you know, Napoleon went to, went to Russia, but France today is uh, also inside the EU. So in some ways, those institutional frameworks that emerged after 1945 um, have had an impact when it comes to, you know, this um, creating especially, you know, peace and prosperity in Europe. And that it has to do with, you know, how you bind yourselves with the others and you try to work through cooperation, although national interests naturally uh, do differ. But I think precisely because um, Russia, even in its rump state form of after the uh, Soviet Union, is that Eurasian empire, is just by its sheer size um, so vast. It has the biggest nuclear arsenal. It also has a sort of sense that it is somehow exceptional um, and that it needs and this buffer zone thinking is also that, that, you know, you have the agency and the others have to submit or oblige at least. Uh, and that's why also, you know, for the 1990s, we talked, you know, you talked about those, um, the socioeconomic malaise. Yes, of course, but it was also an, a denying of the agency of the countries, also the former Warsaw Pact countries, to be able to truly choose freely. I mean, the, the Soviet Union and then Russia, they're all signatories of the Helsinki Final Act and, and members of the OSCE. That's where these principles are enshrined in the UN Charter. Uh, but then you also genuinely have to give it uh, to them, and that might it might be vexing if they choose to align somewhere else. And I think that's why it's it's so hurtful. You know, they they chose to look for security guarantees, uh, and not just in EU, but precisely in NATO with the American umbrella. In other words, America as a power in Europe as an empire by invitation after 1945 is not the same as Russia that acts like an empire by imposition. And you know that is a, a really big difference. Uh, and that, you know, whether you are collective defense and you hold the line or whether you also act uh, across your borders because of that you need these different layers 
of, of buffer zone. And those who get stuck in the buffer zone in Germany, you have that word zwischen Europa, you know, you basically deny them the agency. And, and that's what I think has really also come to the fore with this war of aggression that you cannot freely choose. Although technically one has subscribed to it, technically one has recognized independence declarations and referenda, and one has even had the Budapest memorandum um, with guaranteeing the territorial integrity in exchange for Ukraine giving up its nuclear arsenal. So I think the agency point is a really important one. Um, the way I often talk about it is in the Russian perception, it lost the Warsaw Pact countries and then started to lose the countries of the former Soviet Union. And it's almost as though, you know, it had a bag of candy and it dropped the bag of candy. And it looks at the United States, which picked up its bag of candy. And instead of giving back the candy, it started eating the candy. Um, and that's very much the Russian view of how all of this works. And it's very much a big, and, you know, if you read the way that Russians write about it, these notions of sovereignty, all of it, that sovereignty is for big states and little states um, submit. But I do think to understand the war today, saying it's just Russia. And I say this as somebody who said, you know, a lot of things were Russia and not Putin for the last, you know, 20 years. This is Putin. This is the system he's built. Russians may feel proprietary towards Ukraine, and that's bad, and it's problematical, and it is best resolved through more... Um, or would have been best results in more interaction with Ukrainians and more understanding of culture and teaching of history and so forth. But the notion that you then bomb Kiev, I mean, just the very concept, because of this history of closeness, the very concept that Moscow is bombing Kiev, right? This sentence, it's a very strange sentence in the face of hundreds of years of history. And that is a product of the government that Russia currently has. I think this is a very interesting question, simply because um, we can go down it more and more and more. Why does it end up with that? Why over 30 years has there not really been um, a strong attempt? We all know that, yes, it was taken over by Putin and yes and yes. But why is it so weak that it can be taken over? And whilst the rest of the world has moved on, and I mean the rest of the world. You have to be Myanmar or North Korea or one or two countries in Africa in which you really, really don't care about your citizens to allow yourself to still say, I'm an empire, I'm going to use force to get what I want. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to be bothered developing my economy that much either because I've got all of these resources. I mean, I have to say, if you talk to people in the global south, they will tell you that the United States acts like this all the time and has, and the United States also, I, and I, there are certainly vast differences, but the United States also overlies on military power as a tool of foreign policy. For all the incredible soft power capacity it has, the United States does reach for its military toolkit. And one of the things you hear when you talk to people who aren't in Europe about what's going on in Ukraine is, yes, of course, it's horrible. Have you noticed Yemen? Yes, of course, it's horrible. Have you paid any attention to Afghanistan? Yes, of course, it's horrible. But why do you only care about these things when it's Russia or another country that does this to Europeans and you don't care about them when it's the United States and its proxies doing it to brown people? I think that you're absolutely right on that. 
But I asked a slightly different question, which is not so much about why it's doing it to the outside. Why does it not develop inside? Why is it not looking after its own people in a commensurate way? Why is Russia badly run? Yeah. Uh, why did Russia evolve into a um, kleptocratic, corrupt, extractive government? Well, you know, Ukraine did too. Uh, so uh, you can look, a lot of the post-Soviet countries did. Uh, the way that the Soviet Union uh, dissolved and the systems that grew up in its place and the failures of various reform efforts across most of these, uh, most of these countries with the very strong exception of the Baltic countries, which put a lot of backbone and a lot of effort into it, but also did not have as many years of Soviet control. Um, you know, you can certainly find traces of why you have these, uh, these histories of misgovernment, these difficulties with reform. A lot of the people in these countries will tell you it's it is partly the West's fault. It's because of Western policies that didn't engage appropriately, that tried various things that, you know, claimed conditionality, but it didn't actually implement conditionality appropriately, that didn't pay enough attention. In the Russian case, they will tell you it's because the West was never comfortable with the idea of Russia as anything but an enemy. This can be debated for hours and hours and hours and hours. Um, but, you know, for instance, the notion of Russia joining NATO was not seriously considered. The notion of throwing NATO out the window and developing a new security system was never seriously considered. Could approaches like that have made the difference? Well, you know, the problem with the counterfactual is it's not true. It didn't happen. You're in the situation you're in. But, you know, reform is hard. Rebuilding is hard. You look at Europe and the miracles that have taken place in Europe, a lot of that was about the European countries banding together economically and politically and socially and very consciously trying to build something new. And that is really my point, I suppose. Christina, do you have a perspective on this? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, um, Olga spoke about the Baltics, that that was different. I think it wasn't just because there were 40 years under Soviet occupation. I mean, they had, had um, you know, state building and democracy building in the 20s and 30s. Yes, they drifted at that point to the right. But of course, they had something they could always think back to. And they had always culturally, economically, politically in that free phase uh, focus to Western Europe. And they had even, of course, across the Cold War divide through their um, emigre communities, you know, kept the ties um, to uh, beyond uh, the Iron Curtain. Um, I think um, we must also not forget that, of course, you know, the Soviet Union previously, the, the Tsarist regime, but certainly the Soviet Union, the security services and forces play such a huge role. And, um, you know, we, we have to remember that Putin witnessed the collapse of the Soviet Union as a KGB agent, uh, in in Dresden. So when we consider also the other um, Soviet socialist republic, the newly independent states, um, which then that is a term that leaves out the bolts, um, we you know we see this continuity of elites, of course, on that basis that you know allows for this authoritarianism, and you know those very deeply ingrained way of you know top down politics when you don't you know when there wasn't really even under Yeltsin that was all so haphazard. Um, and often, you know, mad with this alcoholism, you know, one day he's 
you know, being integrationist. And the next day, it's all about, you know, Russia. It was so chaotic. And then, of course, you know, um, the way they undertook the privatization, well, it's nice to go with neoliberalism, but you need, of course, also some kind of law and order. That never took hold. And that, of course, we see across the spectrum of the newly independent states, uh, in other words, in the former Soviet periphery. And then, of course, to get control again, in all of these places, you see this uh, return uh, ever more, you know, of these uh, authoritarian leaders. And I think that's why also it came to such such a shock to the Russians uh, when you had these moments in particular in, in Ukraine, when there's also the sort of looking, again, that sort of liberal integrationist side looking to, to join the EU. Um, and, and of course, Russia never had, you know, that it was spoken about, but it never had really an interest to join a club where you have to give up something. It, it would have wanted to rewrite the rules, not sign up to something that pre-exists. And that's why basically with America, a European power remaining uh, after the end of the Cold War, because the Western Europeans wanted it as a counter counterbalance, as a reinsurance against this chaotic East, against this chaotic Russia, this fear of that instability can be, um, you know, imported to the West, then you go into, you know, you get this oligarchs, you get kleptocracy, everybody's just out for power, it all becomes a power game in a bad way. It's a very specific kind of law and order. Also, it's uh, when you have police and security forces that are intended to serve the populace and not serve the state. And having worked on these issues in other parts of the world, I mean, kind of flipping that switch uh, in the heads of in the enforcers and the state, that the idea is to protect the people, not to protect the state. Uh, and it's uh, it's an important concept, and I think it's one that it can be difficult to integrate. I can't agree with you more, and we see how it does succeed in some places and doesn't succeed in others. Ladies, this is a fascinating conversation, and we are moving towards the end, and we haven't even begun to talk about the things beforehand we said we would talk about. Um, so just very briefly, looking ahead, nobody knows how this war is going to change, or end rather, um, but how does each of you see both Russia and Ukraine after this? Christina? I just think that when there has been a fratricidal war and we have there were headlines today in the press that, you know, the Ukrainians don't just want now peace. They actually want to win. They really, really want to defend their land. I think this will be very protracted. And even if the war per se were to end or even if Russia got a grip on something, there will be insurgency. I think it will be a very, very difficult exit. And I think, you know, it's like in family relations. If you completely break the relationship to rebuild trust and dialogue and, and be able to live together. You have to, you are sharing a border. Um, you know, I think this will take generations because it will take a very, very long process of, of reconciliation. Or, you know, that wonderful German word, Aussöhnung. You know, and the Germans certainly had to do a lot of that with regard to their Eastern neighbors. But here, you know, you have two peoples like you said before, you know, families have been intermarried for centuries. Um, you know, this, this, these are bloodlines. This is, this is really, really horrible on a simple human level. Olia? I don't know how it ends. Um, uh, I do want to see a, a, a peaceful settlement because I don't want to see more people killed. And also because I think the longer the war goes on, the greater the risk that it escalates to involve more countries and that has cataclysmic uh, dangers. So I don't want to see that happen. Um, I would like, I mean, I, 
Also look at Russia, and Russia has changed irrevocably as a result of this war. Um, you know, the war is part of it, which is symptom, which is cause. But Russia has gone back in time. We have lost 40 years of progress, not 30, but 40. I mean, we are looking at a crackdown that is, you know, unprecedented in modern Russia, in post-Soviet Russia. We are looking at an exodus of Russians uh, who are not going to come back until and unless their government changes. Uh, And that is going to shape all of our security and all of our futures. Um, When I look at the rhetoric in Ukraine, you do see a lot of um, perception of the collective guilt of all Russians in this. And that's going to be hard to back away from, and that's going to be hard to get over if all goes well. Um, And that worries me a lot also because, you know, I do want a place for Russia in the future of European security because without a place for Russia, there is no European security. Well, that's a very um, thoughtful and good place to end what I would think is a fascinating conversation. Thank you both very, very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Once again, thank you so much to our guests, Professor Christina Spohr and Dr. Olga Oliker. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions. Please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel. With me is Florence Ferrando. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more great conversations. Thank you.